Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. This weekend's message is from Tyler McKenzie. He's the lead pastor here at Northeast. Welcome online, folks, to Live in the Room. I know that you're thrilled to be here. Welcome today to all of y'all who made it. We're going to continue a sermon series uh, that we started like three weeks before Easter uh, called From Death to Life, From Death to Life. And basically in this series, we are studying Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection back to life. Basically in the three weeks leading into Easter, if you remember, we did cross theology, cross theology. The premise was if we could have like the authors of scripture, Peter, uh, James, John, Paul, the, the dudes, right? Up here on stage and we could say, guys, what did the cross mean? Like give us the basic outline of it. Tell us what its implications were for human history and for the church and that and that moment where it first all happened, I'm like, you knew Jesus better than we do. What does it mean? If we could interview him, that was the heart of the series. Here's some of the basics of what it means. Now, we studied that in the first three weeks leading in on the cross. In the three weeks leading out of Easter, we're going to do the same thing on the resurrection. So uh, if you ever wondered about resurrection and the theology underneath it, get your pen ready. Lots of notes, lots of scripture references today. Now, quick disclaimer, and I gave this disclaimer at the beginning. I want to give it again. Disclaimer, y'all, three weeks ain't enough to cover all the beauty and theology of the resurrection. It just ain't enough. Okay, give me three weeks to do this. It's like, it's like, handing, it's like handing me a, a pack of Crayolas and saying, Tyler, reconstruct the Mona Lisa for us. Right, first off, it's not, it's not even that great of a piece of art in my humble opinion. But second off, I don't have enough time. The artist is, is insufficient to do such a thing and the tools are insufficient as well, right? And yet, despite all that, we still gotta try. We have to try to understand the cross. We have to try to understand the empty tomb because if there is an essential to Christianity, then it is this, it's Jesus died and risen from the dead. You get this right, then you're on the right path. You're in the family of God. But if you get this wrong, nothing else matters. So let's do everything we can to get it right, right? Right, okay. Now, uh, I wanna start today with John chapter 20. It's gonna be our pa first passage that we kind of read through. This is John's account of the resurrection. Reason why I like it is one, it helps us get in the right direction and sort of summarizes for us what all I think the gospels are getting at today and you'll see that in a second. Um, but second, it's also just kind of comical. This is the most comical account of the resurrection. We'll pull some of that out for you briefly. Some of you are already laughing because you know, all right. John 20, uh, verse 1. Let's read this together. Scriptures say, Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, uh, Mary of uh, Magdala, Mary Magdalene, came to the tomb. And she found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. And so she ran. And she found Simon Peter and the other disciple. Quick pause here. Uh, for those of you who are not avid readers of the Gospel of John, what you'll notice is that there's an anonymous disciple in the resurrection story. In fact, Throughout the Gospel of John, 
There's an anonymous disciple in Jesus's inner circle. Like he's close with Jesus throughout, but he's never identified by name. And it leaves us kind of perplexed. Now, many scholars believe that this anonymous uh, disciple is in fact the author of the story. And the author is in fact John, but he doesn't tell us his name's John. Instead, he tells us his name is something much more humble than that. Back to the text. It says, she ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, you know, the one whom Jesus loved. So you have Peter, the disciple whom Jesus apparently just liked, and you got, you got this anonymous disciple, the humble one, the one whom Jesus loved. I thought Jesus loved all people, by the way, so I don't know what's going on here, if there's like some sort of sibling rivalry or whatever, but parents, at the very least, this is justification for you to have a favorite child. Moving on. She said to them, she said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they put them. And Peter and the other disciples started out to the tomb. They were both running, another interesting detail here, but the other disciple, the humble one, <laughs> outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now for the record, it wasn't a race. It's a race. And this detail doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But just in case anyone's as competitive as I am and wondering, you should know the humble disciple is the one who got to the tomb first. Look, here's the deal. Some people are gifted with athletic ability. Some people aren't. We're all God's children, period. Okay, so it's not a big deal. Wasn't a race, though. He then stooped down and looked in and saw the linen, wrap and, uh, the linen wrappings lying there. He didn't go in. Uh, then Simon Peter arrived, way, way after, by the way, way after <laughs> the fast disciple arrived. And he went inside, and he also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. This is just a strange detail. While the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up, lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first, again, not a race, but the details matter, um, he also went in, and here's the key. He saw and believed. He saw and believed, for until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said, Jesus must rise from the dead. It's the word of the Lord. Now, I love this passage. I love this passage because it's a retelling of the resurrection of Jesus. I also love it, sidebar, rabbit trail, because in it, we get to see a quick snapshot of the character of our divinity and the character of humanity, all packed in one. We get to see God's mercy and his patience, right, with us. Because this is his moment. Jesus is risen from the dead, and yet God the Father's got to be facepalming in heaven because somehow we figure out a way to make the resurrection from the dead still about us. And we scribble our little race into the story. Isn't that so like us, and isn't this so like God? Now, that's not the most important detail, though. I think the most important detail of the story are the last two verses, verses 8 and 9. Because in verses 8 and 9, John tells us what I think all the gospel accounts of the resurrection tell us. He tells us what the knee-jerk first reaction of the disciples are to the fact that the tomb's empty. When you saw the tomb's empty and you started processing everything in your brain, what was the first thing that came to your brain, Peter? What was the first thing that you began to think, John? What was that entry-level understanding where it's like the tomb's empty, so this must be true? Where did, you, where did your brains go first? Well, this passage tells us. And this is our big point for today's message. So note, note takers, this is what you want to write down. The resurrection was first. 
And this is the testimony across the gospel accounts. Before they understood the resurrection as connected to heaven, before they understood the resurrection as new creation, and they'll get there eventually, the resurrection was first understood as a vindication of Jesus. And trust me, a crucified and buried Jesus needed to be vindicated in this moment. Again, John chapter 20, verse eight, he went in and then he saw and believed. By the way, this is his second take. He's already looked in and now he's gone in. So double take and finally he sees and believes for until then still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Which leads me to ask the question, John, what did you believe up to this point? What did you understand? You've been with Jesus for three and a half years. Well, I can guarantee you there's two things that didn't click with him yet. One, he did not expect a crucified Messiah because no one did. They didn't have mental space for that. And two, on Friday night, on Black Saturday, early on resurrection morning, they did not expect an empty tomb, a risen Jesus, because they knew what we know today. Dead people stay dead. So they weren't waiting on it. So, so maybe I could summarize it for you like this. The resurrection actually casts a retrospective light backwards, validating Jesus's cross, Jesus's claims, and Jesus's place on the seat of the universe in the seat of our hearts, first place. And that's our big outline for today. Note takers, we're gonna look at how, how the resurrection validates the cross, how it validates the claims of Jesus and how it validates his place, because I'm telling you, when Jesus is laying dead in the tomb, each one of those need vindication. Okay, uh, so first, let's start with the cross first. The resurrection uh, was a vindication of Jesus' cross. Uh, back to uh, John chapter 20. I wanna read these first three verses to you. Uh, once again, it says, early on Sunday morning while it was dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Quick question, why did the women go to the tomb? Why is Mary going to the tomb? Was it to meet the risen Jesus because she was waiting on him? No, no, no. The, the women go to the tomb to finish the burial. He's dead. They didn't finish it on Saturday because Saturday was Sabbath. So they go back on Sunday to finish burying Jesus. Ain't no hope for a resurrection at this point, though. The cross defeated him. When she got there, she finds the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran, found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and she said, he's risen, he's risen from the dead, a resurrection, just like we thought. That's not what she says. That's not what she says. This is what she says. She sees an empty tomb and she thinks, well, they must have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb. And we don't know where they've put him. Now, who's they? We don't know who they is. Maybe it's the Romans. Maybe she thinks this is Jewish leaders, grave robbers. I don't know who, who she thinks they is. But the point is this. They weren't expecting a resurrection. Even with the tomb empty, they're like, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, if they were expecting a resurrection, then the disciples would have been there on Sunday morning waiting for this thing, like singing Jesus out of the tomb. It's like, it's okay, the farmer's almanac said 722 sunrise, so here we are at 721, start the countdown, four, three, two, cue the sunrise, roll the stone, smoke machines go, and choir, because he lived. Like, this is, this is what would have happened, right? They've been throwing a party out there, but they weren't there. The disciples are hiding out, afraid for their lives, and the women are coming to finish the burial. Don't you see? The crucifixion needed a vindication for them. 
Okay, so this is an important, big historical point here. Those of you who like history, a little bit gory, but also at the same time, like, important, okay? Of all, the, of all the ways someone could die, the most physical and socially shameful way to die in the first century and maybe ever was crucifixion. Just to detail this for you, uh, one involved the public beating, as we know Jesus was flogged. Next, it was basically death by torture, after the, the criminal was flogged, they would have to carry the crossbeam to the place of crucifixion. They would then crucify him, like nail him to the cross. Sometimes they would strap him to the cross. Often they would nail him to the cross through hands, through feet. And the Roman soldiers were so skilled at this that they could do it in such a way where they didn't damage any vital organs and they also didn't cause excessive bleeding. Why? Because the point of crucifixion is to prolong the dying process. Jesus actually had a quick crucifixion. Six hours was quick. Most of them lasted days and the crucified criminals would basically uh, die over the course of a few days, maybe from exhaustion or, or exposure to the ele uh, elements. Maybe they would suffocate and asphyxiate because they couldn't hold themselves up. Or they just die of shock from all the pain. There's also a public disgrace. The Romans would strip them naked, nail them to a cross in a public area, usually on a public byway, so people could see them. Rome could make an example of them. And in fact, contrary to popular art and iconography, uh, crosses weren't like way up high in the sky where you'd look like 15 feet up in the air and there's the crucified person. They'd actually crucify them very close to the ground, high enough to where their feet can't touch, but low enough to where people who passed by could look them eyeball to eyeball and mock them unto their dying breaths. In fact, it was such a public disgrace that uh, Roman citizens were exempt from it. It was less than human. It was beneath a Roman citizen. Couldn't be crucified. And the Jews also understood it as a symbol of Roman domination. Again, the Romans used this against their enemies, against the enemies of the state. Did you know that about the time Jesus was born, he's about one or two years old, Herod the Great, the king of Judea, uh, dies, passes away. And uh, anytime a, a leader tra leadership transition happens, that's an opportunity for revolutionaries to revolt. So the Jews revolt. And uh, a cruel general named Varus comes in and history tells us that in order to squash out the rebellion, they crucified 2,000 Jewish revolutionaries. You better believe that the people during Jesus' day still remembered that. Fast forward about 70 years to 67 AD 70, you have the big Jewish revolution. In fact, it was so big and gained so much momentum that uh, Roman general Titus, who would eventually become the emperor, brings an army to the city of Jerusalem, which is in the Roman Empire, by the way, they sack the city, tear the temple to the ground. And history tells us they crucify so many people that day that they ran out of wood. So you can see, the, the, the Jews saw this as a sign of Roman power over them. Now, one more point. The Jews also saw the cross as, uh, as spiritually cursed if you will. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22 and 23 talks about this. It says, for anyone's hung on a tree is under the curse of God. So many, many process the cross as being hung on a tree and taking upon yourself the curse of God. So don't you see, the crucifixion needed a resurrection. It needed vindication. Okay, this was so shameful that in the first two centuries, of the existence of Christianity, the enemies of Christianity used this against the Christians. They basically said, 
listen, their God was crucified. Their God, right? Because it's just a ridiculous, uh, a, a ridiculous idea. I want to show you some, uh, some early Christian graffiti, or I guess early anti-Christian graffiti. Uh, this is from the uh, first couple centuries after Jesus uh, died and risen from the dead. As you can see, it was, it was done on the, uh, it was a graffiti done on the wall of an imperial boarding school for servants, right? So as you can see here, uh, you have a, a, a man hanging on a cross with the head of a donkey on him. And then standing next to this man is a worshiper of him. He has his hand raised in worship. And the inscription underneath says in Greek, Alex worships God. So apparently somebody was trying to razz Alex for being a Christian. See how shameful this was? So, so maybe I could summarize it all for you like this. Big summary statement here. The only thing more unbelievable than a crucified Messiah was a risen one. <laughs> and that's what it took to vindicate the cross. And it took, by the way, it took. Because over the next 20, 30, 40 years, what you see are these early Christian writers actually reinterpreting the cross, not as a symbol of defeat or shame, but as a symbol of victory. I mean, what would it take for you to flip a hangman's noose or an electric chair on its head and start celebrating it? The cross was denigrated, but all of a sudden now it's celebrated throughout the New Testament. Uh, note takers, get ready. I want to give you several examples from throughout the New Testament on how they literally reverse the understanding of the cross and like redeem this, the symbol of torture as the symbol of Christianity itself. Here we go. Just several examples. First, uh, rather than seeing it as a curse, they begin to see it as rescue. Galatians chapter three, Christ rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law when he was hung on the cross. He took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing goes from being seen as a sign of defeat to a sign of devotion. Galatians chapter six, Paul says, I carry the marks of Jesus branded on my body. It goes from being seen as shameful to seeing Jesus as a champion. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. In fact, Colossians two is always interesting to me because Paul says, you know what happened on the cross? He shamed them, not they him which is ludicrous. But Paul's like, no, no, they didn't shame us. We shamed you. Y'all didn't win, we won. Colossians 2.15, in this way, Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Uh, the Christians see it as a cause for boasting, not humiliation, Galatians chapter six. They see it as something to be taken up, not avoided, Matthew chapter 16. They see it as a means to freedom, not captivity, Romans chapter six. They see it as a means to new life, not death, Galatians chapter two. They see it as a means to ethnic and racial peace, not Roman domination, Ephesians chapter two, verse 14. Paul says, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, when, when? In his own body on the cross. He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. See it as a means to cosmic reconciliation, not corporal punishment, Colossians 1. See it as a means to healing, not torture. By his wounds we've been healed, 1 Peter 2. See it as the definition of the power of God, 1 Corinthians 1. The definition of the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1. The definition of the love of God, 1 John chapter 4. And the moment where Jesus is crowned king, Philippians chapter 2. Very popular hymn that many of you will be familiar with. 
Uh, Paul says, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, because of the cross, God elevated him to the place of highest honor, gave him the name above all other names. So you see, you see, what a reversal, what a transformation that takes place. If you were to ask me to give you the five great transformations of all times, I would give it to you in this order. Number five, Tom Brady, transformation of the Buccaneers into a Super Bowl champion in one year. That's incredible. The guy's like 50 years old. I mean, I'm not a Brady fan by any means, but it's a pretty incredible transformation. Number four, Pinterest moms and their capability to transform tree stumps into end tables, tree stumps into coasters, tree stumps into like these centerpieces that actually look good. We have one at our house. Uh, Number three, uh, Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer. Anybody remember this guy? He would literally exercise demons out of dogs on a show and I'm like, I don't know how this guy does it, it creeps me out. Uh, Number two, how science has transformed cauliflower into pizza and among other things, we talked about this on Easter. So just go back and watch the Easter sermon. And And then last, seriously though, last, the transformation of the crucifixion from defeat to victory. I don't get it, y'all. But we, okay, we've said this before. What was once the power of human empire now came to be known as the power of God. What was once an instrument of human suffering now had come to be known as the instrument of Jesus' love. What was once the ultimate expression of imminent death had now come to be known the ultimate expression of eternal hope. In a sense, the cross came to be known for the exact opposite of its original intention. And Paul tells us how. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, it's because of a resurrection. The resurrection was a vindication of the cross. And he goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 to say, if Jesus wasn't risen, all this is a joke anyway, so don't come back next week. You see? Now, again, this is a great apologetic for me, by the way, of the cross. Because why in the world would you try to redeem something like the cross unless something happened, like a resurrection? Now, that brings us to point number two, uh, note takers. The resurrection was, one, a vindication of Jesus' cross from defeat to victory. And number two, it was a vindication of Jesus' claims. Jesus' claims from loser to Lord, liar and lunatic, if you will, to, to Lord. Okay, now... If, uh, if you guys are familiar with Jesus' claims in the Gospels, you'll know that he was a nice teacher, sure. He said some nice things, golden rule, love it, love your neighbor, all that stuff. We like that stuff, right? But he also said some outrageous, blasphemous, crazy things. And I want to remind you of those real quick. Um, he claimed to have the authority to forgive all sins. He claimed to have the power to raise the dead. He claimed that he himself is the truth. Imagine if one of your friends said this to you. You'd get them help, right? Um, he claimed oneness with God. He claimed to know him as to know God, see him as to re- uh, see God, receive him as to receive God. He claimed uh, the authority to judge all. He claimed that judgment's based on his, your attitude towards him eternally. Claims he gives eternal life. Claims eternal preexistence. He claims the divine name. He allows others to worship him. Uh, and uh, he also claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath, the bringer of a new covenant and uh, the new temple, which was blasphemy for a first century Jew. And yet he makes all these claims. Now look, when the early disciples are are preaching about Jesus and in their evangelism, they don't try to explain this away. They don't. They kind of just embrace the blasphemy, if you will. This this was the logic, if you will, of the preaching and the evangelism of the early disciples, okay? 
uh, conversation point here. Them. Jesus said a lot of crazy things. Disciples. Yeah, but it all must be true. Them. How do you know? The disciples. He rose from the dead. I saw him. Them. Oh. And that how it's, that's how it worked. They didn't take apologetics courses or like, like none of that's bad. I'm just saying, they just said, he rose from the dead. So, okay, again, the logic's like this. Either he died or he died and rose. One makes him a loser. One makes him a liar and a lunatic in the words of C.S. Lewis. And one makes him a Lord. And we should throw ourselves at his feet. Okay, so, so do you know what you do if your leader predicts his death and resurrection and then pulls it off? You know what you do? Whatever he says. <laughs> this is the logic of the early disciples. Seriously, it's, it's that simple. Now, I wanna make this practical for you for a second. Um, for those of you in the room who are skeptics or searchers or investigating Christianity as claims. Maybe you're deconstructing right now. Really popular word in Christian circles. Uh, lots of folks are, are disenchanted with American Christianity. They, they don't like the, the church or the, the Christianity that they were raised in. They're starting to realize, that's not, I don't really like that. That's not really what Jesus said. Or, or you know what, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't resonate with my cultural sensibilities. Or I don't like how these leaders are handling or how this is politicized or whatever. And so they're, they're deconstructing, if you will, right? If that's you, I want you to know that this is a safe place first this church. And ultimately, I'm wired like that. I'm, I know how it feels to be you because I'm a constant question asker. Never get really comfortable with, with my faith. I've tried out every religion, every worldview for size over the course of my life, considered the, the pros and cons of each. Um, and even in my Christian journey, I just find myself constantly deconstructing and then reconstructing and then deconstructing the reconstruction and reconstruct, you get what I'm saying? Like this is just how my brain works, so, so I'm with you. And this would be my advice for you, okay? This would be my advice. In your searching or in your deconstructing, start with the resurrection first. Begin there. Look at the historical uh, you know, evidence for it which there's a lot, now I'll give you resources for it, it's how I came to believe somebody rose from the dead, but start there first, figure out what you believe on that, and then if you do, it'll make everything a lot easier. So if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, then it'll save you a lot of time and frustration, because you're not a Christian, right? You can just move on, believe what you want. But if you do believe Jesus rose from the dead, well first, it'll make a lot of the supernatural and miraculous claims easier to swallow, because after all, you believe he rose from the dead. And it'll also make some of the mysterious or, or confusing or even offensive things easier to accept. Because after all, you believe he rose from the dead. Basically, you're beginning your relationship with Jesus at a place of fearful reverence, understanding that he's the truly powerful one. He is supreme over you. Okay, so maybe I can say it like this. A confident belief in resurrection makes deconstruction healthier for two reasons. These are big two. One, it gives you the comfort to explore with the assurance of salvation. 
You can poke, you can prod, you can question, you can criticize, knowing that you can rest in the deep acceptance of the Father because you believe Jesus is risen from the dead. You have that comfort. But it doesn't just offer comfort. Because while you have that comfort, second, it also imposes upon you the humility to trust Jesus over yourself. And that's important because as I listen to a lot of folks deconstruct, what I find is that they're deconstructing into their own feelings or into their own intuition, if you will, rather than into Jesus' teachings. And there's a difference. There's a difference between saying, you know what? That doesn't feel right to me or, or you know what? That doesn't make sense to me, so I'm not gonna believe it. Versus saying that doesn't align with Jesus' teaching or with scripture and I'm not gonna believe it. Do you see the difference? I think if something doesn't feel right to you, that is a red flag. It is a good indicator that you need to chase that down and go deeper. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't let somebody tell you to just ignore that and believe. Ignore that and believe. No, get after it. Dig into it. Look harder there. But at the end of the day, your feelings are not the final authority. The risen Lord is. Because after all, he's risen from the dead. Are you following me? Okay, so... Tim Keller, uh, you guys know, favorite pastor of mine, I've read basically everything he's written. Um, he ministered for most of his life in Manhattan, New York. And so he often came into contact with lots of skeptics and, uh, and, and deconstructors, if you will. And this was the normal line, and I've heard this line a hundred times. Uh, people would say to him, you know, pastor, I can't believe in Christianity or I can't believe in Christianity anymore because of fill in the blank. And they would insert some sort of issue that's just too offensive to me. Or I just can't make sense of that. Now, in most of the scenarios, this is how Keller said he responded. He would look back at him and say, okay, I get it. That, that's tough. That's an issue we have to wrestle down. That's an issue that I struggle with. There's lots of issues people are wrestling down. You know? the, how, do, how does Christianity and science coalesce with one another? You know, what about uh, you know, heaven and hell and judgment? That's, that's really, really tough for me. You know? What about the exclusivity of Christianity? Or what about the violence in its, its past? Or what about how it's being politicized and co-opted constantly? What about the, the Christian sex ethic? What about, what about what? There's so many things that are in the public square being duked out. And, and Keller always say, listen, I, I get it. That's tough. We've got to wrestle through that together. But are you telling me that because that issue, whatever it is, because that issue offends you, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Now, do you see there? It's, it's a basically a non sequitur. Right? The, the, two, the two don't lend itself to, to one another. Okay, so let me give you another example. Take the Apostle Paul. Okay, you guys know his story. Before he was Paul in Scripture, he was Saul, right? And Saul was far more offended by Christianity than you will ever be. <laughs> I can promise you that. You know what Saul did? Saul was so offended by Christianity that well, he went on a violent reign of terror and started throwing Christians in jail and killing them, by the way, which I don't think anyone in here has ever done before. Not advisable for the record. But then Paul meets the risen Jesus on Damascus. And when he believes Jesus rose from the dead, he does two things. He gets baptized by Ananias. And then Galatians 1 says, before he goes on his missionary trips and starts ministering, he actually goes into the desert for three years. And I, I believe he deconstructs everything there. 
He rests in the confidence and under the assurance of his baptism, but for three years before he starts his ministry and goes to the apostles, he has to rethink and reread the Hebrew scriptures. He was a Pharisee. He thought he knew about God, but he realized he didn't know about God. And he had to figure it all out and surrender humbly to the risen Jesus. It's a great model for all of us. So Keller concludes by saying this. He says, you know what we don't need? None of us need a religion or a God that's just a projection of our own desires, right? Otherwise, how will we ever get better? No, what we need is a risen Lord. So really the question isn't, does this offend me or not? The question is, did Jesus rise from the dead or not? And if he rose from the dead, my advice to you would be not to offend him. Which brings us to our last point, last point. Uh, If you are at home right now, I would encourage you here during this last point, we're gonna partake of communion at the end of it. So go grab the elements that you set out. If you're in the room, if you grabbed communion on the way in, it's a good time to pull it out um, because we're gonna partake of it together at the end. As we discussed, this whole sermon series is a communion meditation. So we'll allow this last point to prepare our hearts. Quick review while you're grabbing your communion. Uh, the The resurrection was a vindication. It's a vindication of Jesus' cross from defeat to victory, of Jesus' claims from loser to Lord. At last, the resurrection was also a vindication of Jesus' place. From buried, from he's dead, to he is life. It's interesting, in John chapter 20, at the end of, uh, of this chapter on resurrection, John gives us this purpose statement of his entire book. John 20 is a fascinating chapter. Go read the whole chapter. After Jesus is risen from the dead and the tomb's empty, he then appears personally to Mary of Magdala. He appears personally to all of his disciples. And then he appears personally to Thomas with the rest of the disciples, Thomas the doubter. All these amazing resurrection appearances. And after this, John sort of steps back as the author and he sums up the whole book for you. We've been from John 1, where in the beginning the Word created everything and was with God and is God, all the way now to Jesus risen from the dead, and he sums it all up for you. What I love about this summary statement is it not only gives us insight to the purpose of John's book, but it also is an invitation. Look at how John sums it up. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe. Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. So in John's mind, what's the resurrection? It's an invitation to belief and life. Now that reminds me of another resurrection story. In John 11, before Jesus dies and rises from the dead, he raises one of his friends back from the dead. You, you remember this story? He raises Lazarus. Okay, so Lazarus is sick. And Mary and Martha are Lazarus' sisters, and so they send a message to Jesus. Jesus, your boy's sick. You need to get over here and heal him. You've healed strangers before, right? Come heal your best friend. And Jesus goes eventually to Lazarus, but he takes his sweet time. In fact, by the time he gets to Lazarus, Lazarus is dead and been in the tomb for four days. And Mary and Martha are ticked. In fact, Martha marches out to Jesus And she says, Jesus, where were you? You could have done something. And she kind of gives it to him. And in this moment of grief and anger and uncertainty, this is what Jesus says back to her, 1125. Jesus told her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this? Martha. Now, who's he talking to here? Martha, not Lazarus yet. He'll speak to Lazarus in a second, and that gets cool, right? But he's talking to Martha here. He's pastoring to Martha here in her grief. Because not only is Martha grieving the loss of her brother, but she is fearful of the loss of her very life. In this cultural context, it just is what it is. I don't like it, but this is how, how it was. In this context, women's financial stability was based on the man that they were associated with. And so when Lazarus dies, she loses her brother, but she also sees her livelihood slipping between her fingers. And Jesus looks at her in this moment of grief and uncertainty, and he says, Martha, I'm your livelihood. I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. I'm all you need. Rebecca McLaughlin, PhD uh, in Renaissance literature from Cambridge. She's a smart one. She, She summarizes it all like this. I love what she writes. She says, Jesus says to Martha, as you stand here in your desperate grief, your greatest need is not to have your brother back again. Although you want that, your greatest need is to have me. McLaughlin goes on, believing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life is not a one-time posture of the mind. Rather, it is a daily battle of the heart. Man, I resonate with that. As with a kid riding a roller coaster, all our senses scream otherwise. I'm routinely tempted to believe that something or someone else is in fact my life. I look to the things I desire to fill me up. And those things, those people can feel so real compared with this impossible God who calls me to crucify my desires and throw myself into his arms. In those moments, when I don't believe, I recall Martha's story. Her heart yearned for her brother. His restoration felt like life to her. It's all she wanted. But Jesus stood before her, looked her in the eyes and said, I'm the resurrection and the life. I love what she writes next. She says, we often see prayer as a means to an end. God's a cosmic vending machine, insert prayer and expect results to drop in your hand or kick the machine in anger when they don't. But the story of Lazarus upends this idea. Jesus is not a means to an end, a mechanism through which Martha can change her circumstances. He is the end, period, end quote. But is he your end today? See, what I found is that most of us, if we're honest, are just using Jesus as a means. He's the cosmic vending machine. We put this Christian veneer on, but we're after something else to give us life. Many of us look to, look to money and, and work for security. And so we save, 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 and store, store enough away, somehow give us control of our life because we believe that somehow if we can secure control, that will give us life. You know, life. Others of us look to to significance for life. We climb the stepladder or we sacrifice family on the altar of work or we kiss whoever's rear end we got to to climb to the top because we believe that somewhere at the top of the org chart, it'll give us life. Others of us look to happiness to give us life. Like we experience this, this pleasure, this appetite, travel here and all the things, right? And, And hope that somehow if we have enough experiences, we can fill our life up with life. 
Or here's a new one. I've noticed that the emerging generation looks to justice for this. We activate, we protest, we stand up for the marginalized because we believe on the other side of that, there will be meaning and that will give me life. Now look, while all those things are good things, Jesus would tell you today they're not the ultimate thing. Because if you pursue any of those first, you won't find life on the other side. Rather, Jesus would tell you all of those things are symptoms of life, but he's the source. And if you pursue him first, you get all the good things thrown in as well. If you pursue Jesus first, you have a fiery heart for justice. If you pursue Jesus first, you experience this sort of significance, knowing you are eternally beloved by the Father. If you pursue Jesus first, you experience eternal security, knowing that you have a hope beyond this life that death itself cannot take away. If you, if you lean into Jesus first, and you experience a joy that transcends circumstances and a peace that passes understanding. If he's your end, not the means, but the end. My question today is, is he the end? Or is he just a means for some other pursuit in this life? As we prepare our hearts for communion, I want you to take a few moments in silent reflection. And before we take the bread and cup, which reminds us where our life truly comes from, I want you to ask yourself this question, where am I really looking for life? And take a moment to repent and refocus on him.